This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Pfizer, working to deliver breakthroughs that change patients' lives. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee joined the Washington Post to discuss the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on cancer care. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Chasing Cancer 2020. I'm Frances Deed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. My first guest today is Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. He's a renowned oncologist, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and he's also serving on Governor Andrew Cuomo's commission to rebuild New York's economy in the wake of the pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Mukherjee. Thank you, thank you for having like, me. Delighted to have you. I'd like to start by asking you about the huge surge in cases we have across some of the parts of the country, in the states in the South and Southwest particularly. What's going on there? Is America opening too quickly, too soon, too unscientifically? Well, I think, um, I mean, some aspects of the surge were expected. Um, so um, I think some of it is uh, just the fact that once you let the, uh, once you let people interact, there will be infections. Um, I do fear that we are opening uh, without a- adequate masking and adequate um, uh, protection. Um, I'm extraordinarily worried that the messaging uh, that we've uh, tried so desperately to um, uh, uh, move into people's minds over the last two months has not fully penetrated. And that is, uh, you know, avoid crowded spaces, avoid closed spaces, and avoid contact. And obviously, if you're ill yourself, get tested and get isolated and quarantined. Uh, right now, in the absence of a vaccine and it, with the with very, very few medicines that we have available against COVID-19, this public health strategy is the best strategy. Um, you can either, uh, you know, basically isolate yourself or you can isolate your respiratory system by wearing a mask. Um, and I think part of the problem is that um, outside, you know, many, many other places, many places, I see photographs of people, I've not been traveling outside New York City, but uh, I see photographs of people wearing no masks in close contact with each other. And I think that's a big, 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 big problem. In New York, um, I was out this morning and virtually everyone is masked. So I was going to ask you specifically about New York um, because you're serving in this commission there. Um, What does New York have now? Does it have specific tools to protect against a second wave? Are you worried about that given what we're seeing in, you know, as I said, states like Arizona and Florida and Texas? Um, So again, we're using the best public health measures that we know. And as uh, right now in the absence of a vaccine and with very few medicines that work, uh, the best public health measures are the ones I described. Um, New York, as you very well know, is opening in phases. Um, we are now in a in the first phase of the opening, um, and uh, businesses are now open. Some businesses are now open. Um, in you know, restaurants are open on uh, in in open spaces, and that's because we know from a lot of data that uh, most of the infections, virtually all of the infections with COVID-19, occur in closed, crowded spaces when you have. Uh, intimate uh, contact with respiratory droplets um, from someone who is uh, infected. So I think the phase by phase opening is actually the right way to do things. I think really emphasizing that 
masking and isolation and avoiding of crowds in closed spaces is the right way to do things. And if you don't do it, I think we will face a second wave, which will um, unfortunately cripple, um, you know, if we do another shutdown, it will cripple the economy once again. Um, and that's what right. we want to avoid. I, I would implore, really implore the governors um, of Florida and Arizona and Texas to take this extremely seriously. You have mentioned vaccines a couple of times and President Trump has talked about rolling out hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines by January even. Some scientists have talked and, and thought this was a, a possibly an unrealistic goal. What's your thinking here? When do you think we might have a vaccine? And when do you think that might bring us back to a sort of normal way of life? Well, so, you know, most people um, who work on uh, vaccines, I, I did a roundtable um, with the leading coronavirologists and vaccine uh, people recently, you can find it on the web. Um, most people think that 18 months is an extraordinarily ambitious goal, but potentially achievable. Um, so that brings us really into the middle of the summer next, next year. Um, vaccines are extraordinary things because they have to be not only developed and tested, but they also have to be safe. Uh, we cannot compromise on safety. And, and also they have to um, be deployed. It's not just enough to have a vaccine. It is you need to give the vaccine. You need to have enough doses available uh, so that you can get real immunity. So um, I think the, the, you know, the idea that we would have a vaccine by the winter is extraordinarily ambitious. I mean, is it possible? Uh, I suppose it is possible, but we cannot we really, because vaccines are given to healthy people, we cannot compromise on safety. And I guess right now, with all the vaccine hesitancy there is out there, there's an even higher burden on this burden on this vaccine to be safe, right? We've got people that's distrusting measles vaccines and other. That's right. So that makes it an even greater challenge, as I said. A vaccine, a vaccine by itself in a tube is not useful. A vaccinated human being is is what we need, and. And, and, you know, those are two different things. We need to rebuild trust um, in the scientific system. Vaccines in the history of humanity have saved millions of lives. Millions of lives have been saved. So um, we need to get over the distrust of vaccines. The, the other good thing that's I think it's important to emphasize is that vaccines have been getting safer and safer and safer every year. And that's because new technologies have allowed us to make um, much safer vaccines than uh, were ever present before. As you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, misinformation about uh, vaccines, and that's because vaccine vaccine technologies date back way, you know, into the into the late 1800s and 1700s. So, um, so this, you know, we have become progressively able to create safer and safer and safer vaccines. So, uh, there's a lot of misinformation about vaccines. That needs to go so that we can actually get safe uh, vaccines into the hands of people. That brings me to an audience question. Sylvia Wolf in New York asks whether there will ever be a vaccine for cancer. Well, Sylvia, um, you know, there is no such thing as cancer as a single disease. Um, so it is a multiplicity of diseases. And therefore, um, I would say that it's impossible to imagine a single vaccine for cancer. Now, uh, let me give you some examples. Um, there is a highly effective vaccine developed uh, by scientists 
against uh, vi uh, one virus that causes cancer, the human papillomavirus that causes cervical cancer. And we know that that vaccine, uh, so the so-called HPV vaccine, is highly effective at, at reducing the risk of cervical cancer. But the idea that there would be a vaccine against all cancers, I think, is uh, unlikely because every cancer is really a different disease. Right. So since the pandemic began, it's become increasingly hard for people to visit their doctors, to get screened, to um, have follow-up appointments. What's your greatest concern now when it comes to treating patients with cancer? Well, so we've tried, I think across the nation, we've tried to, to maintain um, schedules for chemotherapy and other uh, life-saving treatments uh, for cancer patients as much as we can. Um, I think where we've seen a where we've seen a drop off has been in um, in in cancer screening, and I uh, you know I can let me emphasize that uh, colonoscopy and mammography are tested mechanisms of screening, um, and so uh, people are afraid to go to the hospital, and we've seen a drop off of people coming in for routine cancer screening, um, and uh, uh, you know the. Catching cancer early is a is a very very important part of the uh, way we treat cancer, um, and so we, we just have to wait and see and encourage people to maintain their regular screenings uh, again with the appropriate precautions um, that are required uh, to go to the hospital. So it brings me to another audience question. This is from Leo Jones in Washington, D.C., and he tells a story that I think many people will relate to. Um, he has a friend who was recently recently died, in fact, from COVID-19, and he says he and his friends suspect that the uh, virus was caught during uh, a visit to a hospital for chemotherapy. So his question, which I'm going to read, is should patients with early stage cancers consider suspending hospital treatments for a year until the U.S. has better control of the virus? Um, the answer is no, they should not uh, do that. Um, I think uh, in most places, uh, in most cancer centers, uh, the, the uh, chemo outpatient chemotherapy wards have been isolated and intensive testing is deployed before uh, you can uh, get chemotherapy. So, um, in fact, I know from our chemotherapy wards um, the outpatient chemotherapy wards that they're, uh, you know, the levels of safety are, are incredible and enormous. Um, obviously, there are other parts of the hospital, and depending on where you are uh, in the United States, where there are COVID patients, and they're, but they're really different parts of the hospital. Um, mm -hmm. It's very, very unusual to have an uh, outpatient chemotherapy suite, which is where most chemotherapy is applied, to be commingled in any way um, with a uh, ward that has patients with COVID uh, in it uh, in the United States. So, I, I, you know, treating cancer early and appropriately remains an incredibly important goal. And I would I would discourage people uh, from delaying chemotherapy or surgical therapy or radiotherapy for early cancers uh, because of uh, worries about um, COVID. Are there forms of um, cancer treatment that can be done through telemedicine? Is that a transition that you are seeing? I've talked to various other doctors, including ER doctors, who've talked about telemedicine uh, forming uh, an, an ever more important role here. So I'd love to hear from you about cancer treatment. Uh, so, um, one, of the, one of the major focuses of the governor's panel in New York is telemedicine. Um, uh, telem it is very clear that uh, telemedicine is going to be part of our future. 
Um, and that is not only because of COVID-19. It was going this way even before COVID-19, but COVID-19 has uh, in some ways just emphasized uh, the idea all over again. Um, I think that um, the, you know, we need to get the right kind of telemedicine. Um, and the idea that, that, that I favor is a kind of hybrid model in which you would have maybe two out of three visits as telemedicine visits, and then one out of uh, the three visits being an actual hand-to-hand um, -hand or face-to-face -face visit. Um, it's really important for me to emphasize that um, telemedicine is not just FaceTime with your doctor. Um, there needs to be a, a, a wide infrastructure built. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be equitable. Um, it needs to reach minorities. It needs to reach places like rural areas uh, where you know you may not have broadband access that's um, that's compatible with telemedicine. So there's an enormous uh, 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 there's enormous amount of infrastructure that needs to be built. But 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 the answer is very clear. Um, I think a hybrid model with telemedicine and face-to-face uh, -face, uh, medicine uh, needs to be built, um, and that is just the way forward. So let's step back just into the lab a little bit. We've been talking about treatment, but we have this huge focus right now on coronavirus um, and an enormous amount of research going into that. Is that going to hurt some of the innovations in cancer at this point, or are, we, are they being delayed? Do you see problems in that area, or can they, the two issues move ahead symbiotically? Um, there, there has been a very concerted effort from the NIH and from other societies to make sure that the uh, that cancer research is not delayed. Um, there was a time, I have to say, that that um, clinical trials for cancer had to be uh, sl slowed down, and in fact, recruitment slowed down because we um, had, you know, the, the hospital was overwhelmed by coronavirus. And this is again a, a good reason to uh, to be thoughtful about this because. If you, uh, you know, containment of, of the COVID-19 um, pandemic not only um, helps people with um, uh, COVID-19, but of course it helps people with any medical condition. So um, we are now, we've now restarted um, in New York, at least at my hospital, restarted virtually every trial. Uh, the IRBs are functioning. Uh, again, uh, a lot of uh, the meetings are being done through uh, through the web, but nonetheless, they're still functioning and uh, laboratories are up and running um, with new protocols to keep social distancing and masking available. So we are back, I would say, mostly on track. But remember, we are on phase one of the of the reopening. Right. So talk a little bit more broadly about the healthcare system as a whole. How has the virus changed how things are being done? You've talked a little bit about telemedicine. Do you see other changes that will be ongoing and potentially beneficial that will emerge from this situation? Uh, um, yes. So I think, um, I mean, one of the things that's uh, that's emerged uh, is uh, we, we've learned uh, very quickly, um, I think, um, that we need a that we need a strong pandemic response team. Um, we've learned very uh, quickly again that we need to strengthen the CDC and the FDA. Um, one of the um, most crucial, um, I would say, one of the most crucial problems and or challenges uh, for COVID-19 was there was a 42-day delay between the detection of the first case of COVID-19 
in Seattle and the widespread availability of testing uh, from uh, the CDC FDA um, for patients. Um, that delay um, should you know, really put us back in terms of being able to track and trace and isolate people. And by the time the testing kits were widely available, uh, you know, the pandemic had already spread in the United States. So um, we've learned lessons um, there. Uh, uh, as I said, there are very sobering lessons. Um, one more lesson is that the um, current system uh, by which we stockpile um, and, and, and give personal protective equipment to doctors facing a pandemic uh, was not in the right place. Um, many doctors and nurses, as you know, were infected. Some, some of them have unfortunately died. Um, this uh, was, a, was, a, was a huge tragedy. Um, and so that's another thing we've learned that we really, really need in the middle of a pandemic to have clear guidelines and adequate equipment for doctors and nurses to protect themselves. And of course, for patients to be protected as well. And this is key, of course, in uh, going ahead with cancer treatment as well, that all these investments in broad um, issues will become important as well in how we deal with um, cancer going ahead, right? Not just individual treatment, but looking at these public health aspects and uh, bring, making sure minorities are um, brought in for treatment. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there has been a, uh, an enormous effort uh, preceding COVID to ensure that uh, treatment was equitable. I mean, uh, the, uh, the non-equitable treatment for African-Americans versus non-African-Americans or Hispanics versus non-Hispanics has been very widely studied and noted. Um, right. and so, in, um, cancer. Was, in cancer. In cancer. That's correct, in cancer. Um, and so, um, you know, this has been uh, widely studied, widely noted. There have been multiple panels and commissions to try to correct it. Um, I believe it will be corrected, um, but if anything, the COVID pandemic has made it very clear that um, healthcare, healthcare equities um, are an, an, an incredibly important issue to address um, as we move forward in, into the next uh, months ahead. So I think I have time for one last question, and that's really about the, you, you work at Columbia, you're, you're training the next generation of students who will go off and be oncologists and do their own work in the midst of a pandemic. How are you preparing them to be the future oncologists we all need um, to go out uh, in such a stress, stressful situation and face and help people dealing with this terrible disease? Well, I think it's it, it's it's reminding people. Um, I mean, the COVID pandemic has reminded people that health is an incredibly important part of the infrastructure of the nation. Our, you know, without health, you you can't have a functioning economy. Um, without healthcare uh, appropriately delivered, you can't have a functioning economy. You can't have a functioning populace. So um, if anything, I've, I've found that the students are more energized. Uh, they're giving more of their time. Many of them have volunteered um, in uh, various capacities during the pandemic, which was a very encouraging sign. Um, they're afraid, um, I think. Uh, but the, the one thing that, that, that's been very clear is that, you know, if anything, uh, the pandemic has convinced us that uh, that without adequate healthcare uh, and adequate distribution of healthcare, um, you know, 
we can't function as an economy and we can't function as a nation. So there's been a... Thank you so much. I didn't mean to interrupt that last sentence, but thank you so much for joining us. That's a great note to, to, to finish on. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.